The word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Before we begin our study of the word of truth this evening, let's make sure that we are uh, spiritually prepared through uh, being in fellowship, filled with the Spirit. We do that, First John 1, 9, if we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we take a few moments of silent prayer, uh, confession if necessary, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to gather together and study your word. We pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study through the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that we might be willing to look honestly and objectively at the mirror of Scripture, and that we might be able to understand more about your wonderful plan for human history and for our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are beginning a new series this evening. God's plan for the ages. There is a method to my madness. By the time we finish, this is really an introduction. It's serving two, two purposes as a series. One is that I want to have on tape for the Sunday school teachers to use as resources a good study on dispensations and covenants and the uh, God's plan for the ages, plus... I want to do a study of Daniel, and I thought this would be a good orientation to uh, God's plan for human history and the divine outline of history if we start here before we get into Daniel. So it will probably take a couple of months in this series as more of a basic series on dispensations and covenants, uh, and then we will get into a study of, of uh, Daniel. Now, one of the thing, one of two doctrines that I think have really opened up the scriptures to most people is the understanding of dispensations in God's plan for the ages. I can't tell you how many people over the years that I have heard make a comment that once I heard about, heard either angelic conflict or the doctrine of dispensations, all of a sudden everything in the Bible began to make sense. And, and the two are, I think, um, integrally related, so we will take a little time to relate God's plan for human history to uh, and the angelic warfare and spiritual conflict. I want you to open your Bibles with me to the first chapter of Acts. Acts chapter 1, and we will look at, down at verse 6. The apostles were questioning Jesus before his ascension. And they still haven't gotten the picture as to just what is taking place and what God's plan is. They're not sure. I don't know how many times it, we have studied this in our study of John, that prior to the upper room discourse, Jesus, at least five times we know, if you compare Scripture with Scripture and go through all the Gospel accounts, at least five times Jesus told the disciples within the preceding four or five days that we know of, I'm, I have to go to Jerusalem where I'm going to be crucified. When they come to the upper room discourse, he says, I'm leaving you, and I'm giving you a new commandment. After the, res the resurrection, they're still not sure what this is all about. And they ask him in verse, verse 6, they came together, and they were asking him. That is an imperfect, which is continuous action in past time. They were asking him saying, Lord, is it, you, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, the sense of the verb there is that they, they kept asking this, Lord, when are you going to bring the kingdom? Lord, is it now? Why are you doing this? And one after the other, they're all just chiming in together, is it now that you're bringing in the kingdom? And notice Jesus' response. He said to them, 
it is not for you, specifically speaking to these eleven disciples, the original twelve minus Judas who has now committed suicide, uh, it is not for you to know times, and in the Greek that's chronos, or epochs, kairos, which the Father has fixed by His own authority. It is not for you to know about the times and the, and the epochs, the times and the seasons, it says in the, in the uh, King James. But that took place just a few days after the resurrection, just a couple of days before the ascension, actually. And it wasn't for about another ten days before the uh, Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost and the beginning of the church age. About twenty years later, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica, and he says now, and he uses the same phrase, now as to the times, chronos, and the epochs, kairos, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Now, you see the difference. In Acts 1, Jesus tells the eleven Paul's not part of him yet. He's not even a believer at that point. You don't, you don't know. It is not for you to know the times and the epochs. It's not for you to understand these things. But in 1 Thessalonians, it's been explained to every believer about the times and the epochs. He expects the Thessalonians to understand this because when Paul was there, he taught them about the times and the epochs. And what that tells us is at the very least, that this was part of the doctrine that was reserved for the Apostle Paul, part of what we call the mystery doctrine from the Greek word mysterios, which doesn't refer to a mystery like a whodunit novel where you uh, don't know who committed the crime and you have to wait to the last chapter to find out what you never were told before so you could figure out who did it. This is not that kind of a mystery. The Greek word mysterion refers to a a, something that has not been previously revealed. In, in the Old Testament, while there were many things revealed about prophecy and about God's role and God's purpose in history and the ultimate destiny of history, there were many details, especially about the church age, which were not revealed at all. The present church age was not revealed at all in the Old Testament. And those specific doctrines related to the church age and uh, many things related to the spiritual life of the church age were reserved for the ministry of the Apostle Paul. It is in Paul's epistles that those things are really explained in a way that they are not in any other writings in the New Testament. But the important thing to note is that this is something that Paul taught when he was in Thessalonica. Now, how long was he in Thessalonica? He was only there a few months, yet one of the key things that Paul taught was about dispensations and about prophecy. And we live in an era where there are some people in some churches that just uh, ridicule the idea of teaching anything about prophecy and they make fun of, of uh, people like Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye and dispensationalists who hold to um, or, or, or spend any time studying prophecy. And prophecy is a very important aspect of Scripture. Almost a third of Scripture was prophetic when it was written and I think it's one out of every um, uh, seven or eight verses uh, in the scriptures have not been are prophetic and have not been fulfilled. So if you, excuse me, I think it's one twentieth, one out of every twenty verses is pr- prophecy that has not been fulfilled. So if you are ridiculing the idea of prophecy because somehow it doesn't relate to the spiritual life today, I've heard that. Well, I just want to learn things that relate to the spiritual life. That's much more important than prophecy. Prophecy just somehow appeals to that insatiable curiosity that people have. They want to know about the future. Uh, basically, what you're saying is that we don't need to know about one twentieth of Scripture. Five percent of Scripture really doesn't need to be there. And God has obviously revealed it to us, so it is important for us to understand everything that God has to say about prophecy. It was written to be understood. It was written to communicate. And it was written... To be lucid, the reason that people don't understand it is for many, many reasons, but they would rather, or they have preconceived notions, and so they don't um, spend a lot of time studying it, or they uh, use allegory or some other types of interpretation to get around it. They want to spend more time on things that seem 
to have a more immediate value. Yet one of the things that always impresses me is how many people get saved when you do prophetic studies. I can't tell you, probably only the Lord knows, how many people have been saved reading Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth. I always remember a line several years ago, um, Earl Rodmacher, who's the uh, Chancellor Emeritus, I believe is his title, of Western Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary. And Earl is a great guy and a a strong dispensationalist and a strong advocate of the free grace gospel. And he and uh, Pastor Theme were having lunch together. And the subject of prophecy and how Lindsay came up and and, uh, Earl Rodmacher said, you know, there are many things in that book that I don't agree with, but obviously God does because so many people have been saved reading it. I've never been in a church yet when I didn't have two or three people in the congregation who didn't come to know the Lord from reading Late Great Planet Earth. And the same kind of thing is happening today when people are reading this left-behind novel, fictional series that uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins are writing. Even though it's fiction, it is all written within the framework of a sound, premillennial, pre-tribulational, dispensational uh, scheme of theology, understanding of theology, and it is uh, very good from uh, here. A little bit that I have read, I have a little problem with their prayer for salvation, inviting Jesus into your heart. We all know that that's a misuse of Revelation uh, 3. But <clears throat> other than that, apparently God does uh, like much of what's there because, once again, uh, thousands and thousands of people are reading it. Just because it's on the New York Times bestseller list, there's tens of thousands of people who, because it's there, are picking it up and reading it and being exposed to the gospel. So for that, we ought to be uh, very grateful. But prophecy is important, and when people come to an understanding that God has a plan for history and that culminates in judgment, they begin to think more seriously about their own relationship to the Lord. Now, what I am planning to do in this next couple of months is to take some time and really look at dispensations, why we say there are, these are dispensations, the significance of dispensationalism and defining it, and understanding the basic mechanic of the dispensations and history, which is God's covenants with man. So it's a combination, a study of dispensations and covenants. Now, to begin with, we have to understand a few key terms, two of which are outlined in these verses, times, chronos, and epochs, kairos. The word for times is the plural of chronos, and chronos emphasizes, both both of these words are are, uh, words describing time, but they have slightly different uh, nuances. Chronos emphasizes the events in their succession, and often refers to things coming to pass as intended, in emphasizing the event aspect in the succession of events. For example, Jesus is born, according to Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time. That's the, the, when the time is right, when, when uh, talking about the birth of John the Baptist, it uses the phrase time in referring to uh, the, the time of his birth was near. So it focuses on events within that succession of time. The word seasons, kairos, indicates a broader sense of time with that and the, the expanses of time with certain definable characteristics. It's very similar to the way we sometimes use the word ages. Then we have the word age, ionos in the Greek which refers to a period of time in history. A period of time in human history. Then we have the word that we are familiar with as dispensation. But if you are using a modern translation, New American Standard Version or New International Version or one of the other modern translations, the word dispensation has been replaced by the English word stewardship or administration. It still translates the Greek word oikonomos. And this word emphasizes the responsibility delegated by God to the human race during that period of time. So the word dispensation or oikonomos 
stewardship, administration focuses on the responsibility that God has delegated to the human race during that period of time. Often we use the word dispensation and age as if they're synonymous, but they, they have, they're, they're very similar. There's a lot of overlap, but there are some distinctions. And the distinction is that age focuses more on simply the chronological aspect, whereas dispensation emphasizes the responsibility uh, in, during that period of time. And then a definition of the word dispensation, it refers to a distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purposes for human history. Now, we'll come back and look at some more things on definition a little later on. But just so uh, everybody has some clue what this means, it's amazing to me how such a basic concept as dispensations, which is key to unlocking and understanding, interpreting the Scriptures, is totally unknown by, by some people. I was in a conversation with someone within the last year who is very involved in church, has been their whole life, uh, goes to church Sunday school, has uh, brothers and sisters and cousins who've all been to seminary and been on the mission field. And this is an individual who, who, who thinks that they are a, a extremely knowledgeable about Christianity. And I happen to mention a sentence, in a sentence, dispensations. What's that? What's, a dis- what's dispensationalism? I've never heard of that. What's so important about that? Why do you need to know that? And this is a person who's pushing 50 and spent an entire life in church and never heard the term dispensation. That's tragic. That just shows how... I mean, to me, dispensation is sort of a first-grade type of concept that most Christians ought to understand. But I always forget that, like Earl Rodmacher said, the trouble with evangelicalism in America is it's the world's largest nursery. And nobody has a vision for getting people out of the nursery and to graduate school. See, we all know that maturity is where life happens. When you were a kid, you needed, you couldn't wait to be an adult. Yet most Christians, when it comes to their spiritual life, they want to stay in diapers. They don't ever want to learn anything. My, 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 that's a three-syllable, four-syllable word. I don't want to understand that. It challenges me too much. Let's just sing something about how wonderful Jesus is and go home feeling good. Dispensation, a distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purposes for human history. Ephesians 3.2 and Colossians 1.25 and 26. We'll come back to this in a little bit. It's clear from looking at Acts 1.6-7 through 7 that there are three things. First of all, that God has a plan which includes different time periods that have different characteristics. The apostles clearly saw this, that there was a distinction between the time in which they were living, where Jesus was in resurrection body and hadn't ascended yet, and the kingdom. They couldn't understand much more than that, but they knew that they weren't in the kingdom yet, and there was a difference between their time and the time of the kingdom. Secondly, Jesus' answer indicates that the temporal boundaries, the time limits to these ages are determined in the decrees of God. It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority so that God has determined the beginning and the end of each of these time periods. So Jesus' answer indicates that there is a temporal aspect to that. Now, for those of you who who don't understand why I keep emphasizing time, there's a big debate that goes on, and some of you one day, or if you don't listen in Bible class... I'm always amazed. I was, never forget the first time I uh, talked to somebody. I was about 18 or 19, and they were telling me how they uh, finally realized how wrong dispensationalism was. I just looked at them like they had just grown a third eye in the middle of their forehead. And I never understood, and still to this day, when I run into people, seminary student guys I went to seminary with who, who've given up dispensationalism, um, I'm always amazed, and I always come back to the fact that these people never truly understood what dispensationalism was to begin with. And for whatever reason, they decided to follow some other path. 
But one of the issues that, one of the things that the critics always say is the word dispensation doesn't mean time, it means administration, and you dispensationalists are always using it to mean time. Well, it clearly has a temporal aspect, as I'll show in a minute, but the fact that there are times, temporal boundaries in the ages, is clear from passages like Acts 1-7. Third observation. Doctrine related to God's plan for human history was clearly taught by the Apostle Paul to the first century church. Early in their stage of development, he made sure they understood dispensations, God's plan for the ages, distinction between Israel and the church, the rapture, all of these things were taught in their first months after salvation. First Corinthians 2.7, Paul says, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. <clears throat> that is, it was hidden from the ages. It wasn't revealed before. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Our is talking about church age believers. The mystery doctrine of the church age is for our glory. It is a unique spiritual life in the church age and distinct from all other times in human history. So when we come to this, we must ask, what is revealed in Scripture about God's plan for human history? What is God's plan for the church? What is unique about the church? What makes the church distinct in history? And Why is it distinct from Israel? And what are the differences? And what about God's promises and prophecies related to the nation Israel in the Old Testament? Is He still going to fulfill them? Or somehow has God gone back on His promises and is He going to give them instead to the church? There are those who who say that. How you answer these questions provides a framework for how you interpret the entire Scripture and will affect how you view every category of theology from theology proper the doctrine of God, Christology, pneumatology, doctrines of the Holy Spirit, ecclesiology, doctrines of the church, uh, including sanctification and spiritual life. It affects everything. Theology is like a seamless garment. You cannot start messing with one part of do- theology or one doctrine over here and not have it affect something over here. Everything is interrelated because ultimately <clears throat> all true theology, we never know it, as it is in the mind of God, is the thinking, the integrated, consistent, systematic, logical, rational thought of God. And what we do when we study the Scriptures, as we extrapolate from the Scriptures, we put together and and come to an understanding of what God has revealed to us. And and none of us understands it perfectly. None None of us understands it, will understand it completely, because we're all finite. And that's why we continue to study and to push and to refine our understanding of the Scriptures. But when things are off in one place, they're going to affect things in several other places as well. And you can't just start tweaking things and say, well, I'm a dispensationalist in prophecy, but not here. Well, you can say that, but you're just irrational and inconsistent. And that's exactly what goes on. And that's supposedly okay today. I'll never forget, I did a pastoral internship under a Southern Baptist pastor, and one day, very proudly, he said, well, I'm not like all you people over at Dallas Seminary who are constructing all these systems. You know, you don't impose all these systems on Scripture, which shows he doesn't understand the process to begin with. He says, you know, I just teach what the Scripture says. I says, everybody has a system. Yours is either consistent or inconsistent. Which is it? And see, we live in a day where today when people don't want to think So they just somehow make these pious statements like that and think it makes them sound so spiritual. There are two major schools of interpretation for Scripture. Two major schools of interpretation. I don't care who you are, what denomination you're in, you're going to fall into one of two camps. You are either going to be a dispensationalist or you're going to be into replacement theology, one or the other. Let's define the terms. First of all, dispensationalism. Dispensationalism understands that God will ultimately and literally fulfill all of His promises and prophecies to the nation Israel. God will ultimately and literally fulfill all of His promises and prophecies to the nation Israel. Replacement theology 
says that the covenants and promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament have now been transferred to the church. Now, there are many different kinds of replacement theology. Covenant theology is the most dominant form, and you find that among Presbyterians, Reformed theologians, people like R.C. Sproul. And when I name names, I'm not running down these people. I just want you to know who you're listening to, because I've been amazed over the years that I can teach till I'm blue in the face and never mention somebody's name. And people are, kind of, you know, people are sheep, and they just go right out continue to listen to the same old jerk who's teaching false doctrine because the light never quite came on. So I'm just giving you these names. R.C. Sproul has become quite prominent today, and we don't, I don't know that we get him up here, but he is po- quite popular around the country. And, you know, in some areas he's quite good, but he is a five-point Calvinist. He's a very strong covenant theologian, and he's now shifted to, to uh, uh, what's called the preterist interpretation of prophecy, which means it was all fulfilled back in 70 A.D., and there's just a few things that are left in the future. But that is covenant theology, and we most associate it with Calvinism, with hyper-Calvinism, with um, uh, Reformed theology, Presbyterianism, Congregationalism, all have their roots in covenant theology. But Lutheran churches also hold to a replacement theology. The God abrogated His promises to Israel because they crucified Christ, and He transferred those blessings to the church. Methodists. Roman Catholics, all these different groups who do not hold to a specific future in God's plan for Israel, all hold to replacement theology. And in order to do that, at some place, you have to shift from a literal interpretation of prophecy to an allegorical or figurative interpretation of prophecy. We'll get into that a little later on, but one of the questions that always comes to my mind is why is it that that all of the first Advent promises were fulfilled literally. Why do you have to change the second Advent promises to make them get fulfilled in a non-literal or allegorical manner? So there's really only two views, dispensationalism and replacement theology. You're either one or the other. There are a number of misconceptions that people have about dispensationalism. Some of these things really get my goat, and I just about go nuts when I hear them. And one of those is that I'm hearing more and more idiotic charismatics. I'm not saying every charismatic is an idiot, but I'm hearing a lot of idiotic charismatics come up and say, well, dispensationalism, there wouldn't be anybody against speaking in tongues if it weren't for dispensationalism. Well, that shows that they're historical nitwits. You know, and I say that because the error that they are promoting, and and many of these people who say this are scholars and they know better, some of the greatest works, theological works, to demonstrate the fallacy of the charismatic movement and the tongues and the modern tongues movement were written by covenant theologians, by Reformed theologians, men like B.B. Warfield, who was the head of the theology department at Princeton at the end of the 19th century and into the beginning of the 20th century. And Warfield hated dispensationalism. And then you have other people like, like uh, uh, Rick Gaffin, Dick Gaffin at uh, Westminster Seminary, which is a covenant school. It is, it is to covenant and reform theology what Dallas Seminary is or has been to dispensationalism. And uh, he has written a number of books demonstrating the fallacies of the modern tongues movement. Uh, there have been many others that have been written by reformed theologians who are in covenant theology. It is, if you are a consistent dispensationalist, you cannot be an advocate of Pentecostalism, the charismatic movement, or speaking in tongues. It is inconsistent. And that has been demonstrated historically, and many of them are beginning to realize it. In the early years of the Pentecostal movement, at the turn of the century, for those of you who don't know, the Pentecostal movement began on January, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, January 1st, 1901. 20th century didn't begin in 1900. 21st century didn't begin in 2000. Just make sure you didn't forget that. Uh, on, at a New Year's Eve watch service, a woman by the name of Agnes Osmond was praying for the gift of tongues because she had been taught that that was a sign that she had been baptized by the Holy Spirit and would reach uh, perfection and full sanctification. And so she started speaking something they all thought was Chinese. At the very beginning, all the 
the, the charismatics of the first six months all believed that speaking in tongues biblically was speaking in known languages. It wasn't until they realized after about six months that this was nobody knew what these languages were and they couldn't communicate to anybody that they had to go back and rebuild their theology and say, well, no, 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 this is angelic languages or spiritual languages, but it's not uh, human languages. Um, once again, their practice shaped their theology. But uh, in those early years of the Pentecostal movement, they were, they, many of those people came out, of, uh, came out of situations and backgrounds influenced by the Bible conference movement, uh, the great prophecy conferences at the end of the 19th century, and so they'd been influenced by dispensational theology. So they kind of picked that up. And you look at the study Bibles that are real popular among Pentecostals, and they were, they were dispensational. But by the late 70s, Many Pentecostals were now beginning to develop more scholarly approaches and they began to realize that there was an inherent contradiction between dispensationalism and, um, and Pentecostalism. Because if you understood, a, had a consistent distinction between Israel and the church, then you would logically have to realize that the gift of tongues was given, according to Isaiah, as a sign of judgment, God's impending judgment on Israel, during the early part of the first century, and that was fulfilled at 70 A.D. when Rome destroyed the nation Israel and destroyed the temple. And there was no longer a need for the gift of tongues after that. That it had a particular purpose as a sign of God's coming judgment on Israel. Well, realizing that that was consistent with dispensationalism, you had many... Charismatics began to dump dispensationalism wholesale during the uh, late 70s and into the 80s and going over to kingdom theology, dominion theology, which all has its roots in covenant theology. So that's one misconception. Charismatics will always say, well, dispensationalists, you know, they're anti-supernatural because they don't believe in tongues. And, um, and that's why people, if it weren't for dispensationalism, nobody would be anti-charismatics. And that's just wrong. Second misconception is that there are dispensationalists teach that there are two ways of salvation. That there is a way of salvation in the Old Testament that was based on the law and a different way of salvation in the New Testament. Now, there may have been some dispensationalists here or there who have made such wrong statements, but that has never been the view of most dispensationalists. They have always believed that salvation has always been by faith alone, in Christ alone. In the Old Testament, it was an anticipation of God's provision of salvation, looking forward that God has promised the Messiah who will come and save us. They might not have known all the particulars, but they knew the Messiah would come to save them from their sins. In the New Testament, we look back, but it's always been by faith alone, in Christ alone, either anticipated or or completed. Third misconception is it's new. Nobody was a dispensationalist until John Nelson Darby came along in the 1830s. Therefore, it's not biblical. Well, if newness is any kind of criteria, then if you look at the whole scope of things, 2,000 years of church history, covenant theology didn't develop until the 1600s. So just because they're 200 years older, they're still the new kid on the block. You know, they're, they're damned by their own criticism. New is never not only is new not a legitimate criticism of dispensationalism, but new is not a uh, legitimate criterion because it is possible that people miss things in the study of Scripture and there may be and there are strong historical reasons why nobody ever thought in terms of dispensationalism uh, prior to Darby in the 1800s. You see, there's, I always say there's three legs on the stool that support dispensationalism. One is a literal interpretation of Scripture. And from the late 3rd century up until the middle of the 16th century and the Reformation, nobody was thinking in terms of literal interpretation of Scripture. Allegorical interpretation of Scripture dominated from origin to the Reformation, and it took years for theologians to start applying and working out a literal interpretation of Scripture in areas other than salvation. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the church of Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517, started the Reformation, he was applying a literal interpretation to soteriology, 
but he had a major battle on his hands with a little group called the Roman Catholic Church. And he didn't have time to work out his theology, his literal interpretation in other areas of theology, because he's doing battle on salvation, as were all the Reformers. And it really wasn't until almost 1600 that some began to apply this new concept of a literal interpretation to areas of prophecy, and then they became premillennial. That's the second leg. You have to be premillennial in order to ever come up with an understanding of dispensationalism or uh, preterb rapture. Third, you have to understand there's a distinction between Israel and the church, and that doctrine really wasn't restored full bore until about the end of the 1700s. And it wasn't long. It's not much of a jump between about 1790, uh, the late 1790s, when Napoleon took his armies down through North Africa and swung up through the Middle East and Israel, that generated a lot of interest in the Middle East, and all of a sudden people started asking questions, does God have a future for Israel? So it's not long from about 1797, 1798 to mid-1830s when Darby first articulates uh, dispensationalism. But the interesting thing is you can go back in history and you can demonstrate that many theologians in the early church, 2nd century, 3rd century, had all the distinctives of dispensationalism in their writings. A distinction between Israel and the church, literal hermeneutic, uh, literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. It's just that they weren't developing that theology consistently. They're thinking about, they're fighting battles on other fronts. Now, what was going on? We've studied this in our study of John. They were trying to figure out who Jesus Christ was in the Trinity. You know, you're, you're wrestling with trying to define the Trinity and trying to define the hypostatic union. You don't have time to try to figure out what's going on in Revelation 17. You're too busy with more foundational things. So, new doesn't is not an, an adequate criticism of dispensationalism. The fourth thing is you always get, from, especially from the lordship salvation crowd, is that dispensationalists are antinomian, which means they don't believe in absolutes. You can just live your life as you want to because all they want to do is say, this is the age of grace, which means it doesn't matter what we do. And that is false. It's a caricature. And I don't know anyone, even among the most, the strongest free grace advocates, I mean of legitimate theologians and spokesmen for dispensationalism, who are antinomian. Fifth, we've been accused of being anti-intellectual. This is the I was a teenage dispensationalist argument. You always hear this. I've heard this when we've had Tommy Ice here at the church speaking, and I've heard this from people. Tommy's debated. I've heard it from a number of people. They'll stand up and they'll talk about how I first fell in love with the Scriptures when I understood dispensationalism, and I was taught at my dear old Mrs. So-and-so when I was in fifth grade Sunday school class. But then when I went to seminary and I finally got a biblical education and went on to earn my doctorate, I finally realized that it wasn't right. And now that I'm enlightened with a Ph.D., I now know what the truth is. And dispensationalism is fine for backwoods fundies who don't know anything. But now that I'm educated, uh, I, can, I, can, I don't need uh, to hold on to dispensationalism. I can't tell you how many men I know who have two or three or four Ph.D.s, earned Ph.D.s from places like Cambridge and Oxford and Aberdeen and Edinburgh and Dallas Seminary and Harvard and Princeton and Yale who are committed dispensational theologians. It's just an ad hominem argument that doesn't work at all. But you always run into these things, and this is what has challenged people who have been raised in dispensational churches. All of a sudden, they move. Something happens. You never know. Next year, you may be on the other side of the country. You know, Jim Davies getting ready to go serve the Navy in Kansas because there's a lot of water in Kansas, right? Who knows what he's going to run into in Kansas? He may run into somebody who who, who talks with with uh, a lot of 75 cent words and and talks about how dispensation only idiots believe in dispensationalism. And I've seen that happen to people. They grow up in a church and they're consistently taught dispensationalism all their lives and then they move. They can't find anybody in their, in their uh, new geographical location who teaches like the pastor they grew up under. So they go to some church. This guy's not a dispensationalist and, all of a, and he's smart and he's intelligent and he is persuasive. And all of a sudden now they're challenged and they don't have an answer. And that's one reason I think it's important to prepare people 
intellectually and doctrinally so they know what the enemy is saying. You have intelligent people out there who, hold, who have rejected dispensationalism, and in many cases, they've created straw men. There's a very well-known, widely known scholar by the name of John Gerstner who published a critique of dispensationalism in the uh, early 90s, and the first edition came out, and the publisher withdrew it because every book review that came out, even by people who were not dispensationalists, they said, what, he, he's so totally misrepresented dispensationalism that, it, that it's false. It, it, was a, it was a terrible thing that the scholar of his credentials should have written such uh, falsities about dispensationalism. He misrepresented it. I mean, I, I may critique people, and people may critique my theology. What drives me nuts is when you don't represent me correctly. I don't care if you say I'm wrong as long as you represent what I say correctly. But if you misrepresent what I say, then, then we don't have a basis for any kind of dialogue. And Gerstner just flat out called dispensationalism a cult and that it was not a branch of the church at all. Another critic, Oswald Alice, said that dispensationalism is a danger and it's unscriptural. Dispensationalism has also been labeled a dangerous heresy, the essence of modernism, which is an older term for liberalism. It's been called unorthodox. Some uh, of the modern uh, post-millennialists have said that it is generally taught by heretical sects on the fringes of the Christian church. I mean, if you use terms like that, then you've automatically poisoned the mind of your audience against dispensationalists, even if what you say is not true. R.C. Sproul, who I mentioned earlier, draws an analogy between Joseph Fletcher, the father of situational ethics, and dispensationalists. So you see, this is the kind of stuff that people believe out there and has nothing to do with the truth of what dispensation is taught. So, what is a dispensation? The English word dispensation comes from the Latin word dispensatio, which is in the Latin Vulgate and translates the Greek word oikonomos. It means to weigh out or to dispense. The main idea is to deal out something, to dispense something, or to distribute something. It is the action of administering or ordering something, bringing order to something, administering like running a company. Somebody who's a manager of a business is a is a, a, he, his administration would be called a dispensation. Someone who deals out or distributes something. It is, secondly, the act of administering or dispensing, left my S out there, dispensing with some requirement. Now, I stated earlier that one of the major criticisms from the non-dispensationalists is that dispensationalists always use the word dispensation as if it has some time meaning. And then they say, no, it doesn't. And they go into all this lengthy scholarly analysis of the Greek word. But I want you to notice just something simple, like Webster's Third New International Dictionary, defining dispensation, the English word dispensation. First of all, the, there are four sub-meanings to the first, first meaning listed in the dictionary. In case you didn't know this, this is something your parents can teach your kids when they use a dictionary, that a dictionary lists meanings in terms of their more prominent usage. So the first meaning is the most usage, and then the, if it has eight or ten meanings, the eighth, ninth, tenth ones are, are less common meanings or nuances to the word. So they're, they're listed in terms of their order of the prominence of those meanings. First of all, it is a divine ordering and administration of worldly affairs. Secondly, according to Webster's, it is a system of principles, promises, and rules divinely ordained and administered. Third, it's a period of history. Notice that time right there. Part of the first definition. A period of history during which a particular divine revelation has predominated in the affairs of mankind. That's a pretty good definition of dispensation. Fourth, any general state or ordering of things. Second meaning, a dispensing with or doing without something. For example, in the Roman Catholic Church you can get a papal dispensation, which means... Uh, done away with making something a sin. It really wasn't a sin. You can get away with it. Um, 
Third, the act of dispensing or dealing out, distributing. Something that is dispensed or distributed. So that's what Webster's tells us the English word means. The Greek word oikonomia, which is the noun, or the uh, one form of the noun or adjective, uh, is the word from whence we get our word. You can see how they sound similar. Ecumenical, economy, it means to manage, to regulate, to administer, and to plan. It means to manage, to regulate, to administer, and to plan. The very concept of a dispensation tells us that God has an orderly system. We know from 1 Corinthians 14 that God is a God of order, that He is rational, that he has a plan, and that that plan includes many different details. It is a combination word of two Greek words, oikos, meaning house, and namas, meaning law. So it literally means a house law or house rule. Now, anyone who's been around for a while and has kids or grandkids knows that the rules in the house change over time. When you had two or three rugrats running around your house all under the age of five, there was one set of rules. When those uh, three or four rugrats hit their adolescent years and started driving and staying out late and dating and uh, having, being involved in all sorts of school activities, there was a different set of rules. Then when they moved out of the house and went to college and they'd come home on weekends, you had another set of rules. Then when they got out of college and moved home again, (laughs) there was another set of rules. But there were similarities in each of those administrations. You were still the boss, or maybe I should say you still thought you were the boss. You were still in charge. You were still the head of the house. The fathers were. And the mothers were still the mothers. And there were certain rules. They were the authority and they set the, set the rules. But there were other rules that changed. So it had to do with how you managed the household or how the household was managed or regulated from one time to another. So the basic meaning of the word uh, oikonomos means to manage or administer the affairs of a house Sometimes it's translated world, but only in the sense of the inhabited world, and it emphasizes the management or administration of the world. It is a little, it's a slightly different word than the word I own for age, and it does not have an inherent time factor to it. Now that's important, that's what our critics always say. You dispensationalists use the word as if it has a time factor. Well, inherently, it doesn't have that time factor, but when you talk about an administration, it implies a beginning. Just when you talk about an administration, it implies a beginning and an end. So it's not like it's contradictory to a time factor. And it emphasizes the concept of, of management and administration. The word is used 20 times, or forms of the word are used 20 times in the Greek New Testament. It's used one time as a verb, or konomeo, and that's in Luke 16, verse 2, which means to be a steward. To be a steward, and a steward was someone who was the manager of a household. You would have a large household, you would have a wealthy man, and he would hire someone who would be his administrator, and he would manage his money, manage the the uh, slaves or the workers on the, um, on the farm or in his business. And this is the steward, Luke 16, verse 2. Nineteen times it appears as oikonomos, which is, um, means a, a ten, ten times uh, oikonomos is the noun, oikonomia is the adjective related to the noun. It's used ten times to refer to steward um, or, or administrator. Luke 12:42, Luke 16:1-3 and 8, Romans 16:23, 1 Corinthians 4:1 and 2, 
Galatians 4.2, Titus 1.7, and 1 Peter 4.10 all talk about oikonomos as the administrator. Luke, for those of you who couldn't write that fast, Luke 12.42, 16.1.3 and 8, Romans 16.23, 1 Corinthians 4.1 and 2, Galatians 4.2, Titus 1.7, and 1 Peter 4.10. Oikonomia... The adjective is used nine times. The noun is used ten times. The adjective nine times for a dispensation. Or it's really an adjectival noun. Dispensation. Luke 16, 2, 3, and 4 again. So we'll have to look at Luke 16. 1 Corinthians 9, 17. Ephesians 1, 10. And Ephesians 3, 2, and 9. It's also used in Colossians 1, 25 and 1 Timothy 1, 4. Now, let's look at Luke 16 to see if we can understand a few of the features related to this use of, of oikonomos. And the verb and noun both used in this particular parable. It's a well-known parable that talks about the parable of the steward. Verse 1, Now, he was also, Jesus, that is, Jesus was saying to the disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward. The steward is his manager, his household administrator, who had a steward, or an oikonomos, and this steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. So there we have the concept, he had a responsibility and he's being irresponsible. When he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship. There we notice that there is an accounting for our responsibilities in a stewardship. For you can no longer be steward because of failure to live up to fulfill responsibilities. There is a loss of stewardship. Third, third verse, And the steward said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the stewardship away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I am removed from the stewardship, they will receive me into their homes. Well, we don't need to go any further. My job, my purpose of that is not to, not to, um, not to do an analysis of the parable, but just to pull out from it some aspects related to stewardship. Four things. First of all, there are two parties involved. When you talk about a stewardship or dispensation, there are two parties involved. The first party has authority to delegate responsibilities, and the other has the responsibility to carry out those duties, carry out those responsibilities. One party has authority to delegate responsibility, the other has the responsibility to carry out those duties. There is an obligation imposed upon the steward. Second, there are specific responsibilities for the steward. Specific responsibilities for the steward. Third, there is accountability. As part of the arrangement, at any point in time, the steward can be called upon to explain how he has fulfilled his responsibilities. And then fourth, a change can be made at any time if unfaithfulness is discovered. A change can be made at any time if unfaithfulness is discovered. Now, these parables were based on everyday life experiences, how society functions, so it was very clear when they used words like oikonomos, oikonomio, oikonomeo, that the people who read the Scriptures understood what they were talking about. Later in the New Testament, Paul uses the word in a number of places. It's also used by Peter in 1 Peter 4.10. And there are seven features that are obvious in the epistles. First of all, God is the one to whom men are responsible in discharging stewardship. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2. God is the one to whom men are responsible in discharging their stewardship. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. Second, faithfulness is required of those to whom a dispensational responsibility is committed. Notice, it's faithfulness. In 1 Corinthians 4.2, it's not success. God is not concerned about how many people we get into church, how many people you manage to witness to, how many people are 
won to the Lord by you, how many baptisms there are, how large the congregation is, how much money you get. We use numbers to uh, evaluate people, but God does. God uses a different standard. This is one reason why over the years I've noticed that some businessmen, especially uh, entrepreneurs and and, uh, salesmen types, often have a very difficult time when they come over into church leadership. All of a sudden, they want to impose upon the pastor uh, a lot of concrete, measurable objectives. Faithfulness is not a quantifiable objective other than you know whether or not your pastor is spending any time studying the Word by how much content you get out of the pulpit. And if he's not spending much time in the Word, that becomes obvious before too much longer. What is required is faithfulness, not success. Noah was faithful for 120 years and preached the Gospel, but wait a minute, how many people did he convert? Zero. But God said he was extremely successful. Because our success in God's eyes is determined by how faithful we are to the task that God has given us. The fruit is up to Him. Third, stewardship may end at some appointed time. It doesn't go on indefinitely. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. A stewardship may end at some appointed time. It doesn't go on indefinitely. Fourth, dispensations are connected to mysteries. That is, hitherto unrevealed doctrine, spiritual revelation. A new dispensation comes with new revelation. A new dispensation always comes from new revelation. Now, that does not mean that new revelation automatically brings a new dispensation. There were certain things that Isaiah revealed that had not been known before, and certain things that Jeremiah revealed that hadn't been known before, and that Daniel revealed that hadn't been known before. It didn't change the dispensation. But a dispensation will always change with new revel- when there will always be new revelation at the beginning of a dispensation. Fifth, dispensation and age are connected ideas, but they are not synonymous and they are not interchangeable. Colossians 1, 25 and 26. Dispensation emphasizes the responsibility or administration aspect. Age emphasizes the time aspect. F. God has clearly demarcated certain chronological divisions in human history. He's clearly marked out certain divisions in human history. For example, Ephesians 1.10, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and upon the earth. The fullness of times is a reference to the millennial kingdom. That is a future dispensation. Ephesians 3, 8 and 9, Paul says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration, there's our word, oikonomia, the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Right there we see two more dispensations. The present administration of the mystery, that would be the church age, and then there's the implication that there is a preceding dispensation, the ages before where it was hidden. So in the Apostle Paul, there are, there's the use of the word dispensation, Just like dispensationalists use the word in reference to three periods of time, the millennial kingdom, the present church age, and the uh, age prior to the cross. These are the three dispensations that Paul mentions, Ephesians 1.10, Ephesians 3.2, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, there he calls the church age emphasizes grace as an aspect of the present dispensation. Not that there wasn't grace before, but it is in a fuller measure. Christ came, He was full of grace and truth. So we have grace in a fuller dimension in the present church age. And then Colossians 1.25, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship or condemnation of the dispensation from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, 
but has now been manifested to his saints. So there are at least three dispensations outlined in the scriptures. And sometimes people say, well, how many dispensations do you have to believe in to be a dispensationalist? At least three. At least three. Now, we won't get there tonight, I don't think, but dispensationalists have divided up history according to different schemes, so there's no set orthodox number. You don't have to believe in seven or five or six to be a dispensationalist. The issue is not how many dispensations do you hold, but whether or not you maintain a consistent distinction between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church. Dispensations has been defined by different people in different ways. Schofield, in the Schofield Bible, the original Schofield Bible, not the new new one, uh, defined dispensation as a period of time during which man is tested in respect of obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. Graham Scroggie, who was a well-known dispensationalist in the early part of this century, wrote, The word oikonomia bears one significance and means an administration, whether of a house or property, of a state or a nation, or as in the present study, the administration of the human race or any part of it in any given time. Just as a parent would govern his household in different ways according to varying necessity, yet ever for one good end. So God has at different times dealt with men in different ways according to the necessity of the case, but throughout for one great grand end. In other words, there's a common purpose in all dispensationalists, but there are distinctions. Ryrie, who is in his generation more known as a defender of dispensationalism than anyone else, defined it as a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purposes. He has created such a pregnant dispensation, I mean, pregnant definition that it always has to be explained. Uh, He mentions economy because in each dispensation there are features that are the same or similar and and, uh, as in any economic system. For example, an economy is like an administration. You might have a communist economy or socialist economy or capitalist economy, but there's some things that they all have in common. But there are also many things that they have that that are distinct among them that make them different. Uh, A distinguishable economy means that there are differences that are observable and definable that make each system unique. And third, it's the outworking of God's purposes, that God has a plan and a purpose for human history and that these distinctions are, have, are, do have a distinct purpose. Another definition is by Pastor Theme and Divine Outline of History. A dispensation is a period of human history expressed in terms of divine revelation. History is a sequence of divine administrations divided into eras, each having unique characteristics as well as certain functions in common with other ages. These consecutive errors reflect the unfolding of God's plan for mankind and they constitute the divine viewpoint of history and the theological interpretation of history. And that last brings in a very important aspect that only dispensationalists have a uh, profound understanding and view of history in total because of, uh, of dispensationalism. And then one that I wrote that's out now, I think it's out now and. Tim LaHaye's New Prophecy Study Bible. A dispensation, therefore, is a distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purposes for human history. A closely connected but not interchangeable word is age, which introduces the time element. God manages the entirety of human history as a household, moving humanity through sequential stages of his administration determined by the level of revelation he has provided up to that time in history. Each administration is characterized by revelation that specifies responsibilities, a test in relation to those responsibilities, failure to pass the test, and God's gracious provision of a solution when failure occurs. You will become familiar with that definition. Everyone will have it memorized before long. Next time we'll come back, we'll continue this introduction to dispensations and we will look at them 
in terms of the characteristics of each dispensation and how you define when a dispensation begins and when a dispensation ends. And then we will begin a look at covenants. We're going to build, I'm building definitions to begin with because there's so much confusion over what these terms mean. We're going to define dispensations, dispensationalism, then covenants, and then we'll start in Genesis and work our way through the dispensations, outlining their characteristics and each, the, the features of each particular one. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for your revelation that you have declared the end from the beginning and you have a purpose that you are working out in human history and that, that you have revealed this to us and that we can study your word and we can clearly learn and understand these things. It is not up to us to just guess at what you are doing or where we are in human history. We thank you for your grace that the center point of history is the cross, that where Christ died as a substitute for our sins, that we might have salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied, help us to gain a further understanding and insight into your word, that we may be able to apply it better. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.